This is officially a story about the pursuit for justice, but it is one of lying, deceit, hypocrisy and murder. Most of those I shall mention are guilty of at least one of these sins, and some of more. It is the story of John Demianek. Ivan Demianek, his name is written Demjanjuk with two J's, was born in 1920 in the Ukraine, then a part of the Soviet Union. In 1942, he was captured by the Germans and was recruited into the German army. He was not thought suitable for a fighting role and so was sent to a camp at Travniki, 180 miles southeast of Warsaw, where he was trained as what was called a Wachmann, that is a guard, in the SS. The war ended and eventually he found himself in a displaced persons camp in West Germany, from where he emigrated to the United States. He was naturalized as an American citizen in 1958 and changed his name to John. And from then until 1977 his life was normal, marriage, children and a job in a car factory. But in 1977 things changed. A Holocaust survivor in Israel claimed that John Demianek was Ivan the Terrible, a notorious guard at the Treblinka concentration camp. The fact of this claim was unwelcome news, not only of course to Demianek, but also to the US government. Motivated by the best of intentions, it had granted sanctuary to a person in need, and now it transpired that that person could be a war criminal. Many members of the public were enraged by this possibility, and demanded that something be done. Demianek had emerged from obscurity and become a political hot potato. The United States Department of Justice has an Office of Special Investigations, the OSI, and this office was put to work on the case. They sent a photograph of Demianek to Israel, and from it nine witnesses in Israel identified Demianek as Ivan the Terrible. On this basis, the OSI decided to commence proceedings against Demianek to deprive him of his US nationality. Those proceedings were underway when the OSI became aware of statements made by former camp guards to the Soviet authorities that Ivan the Terrible was in fact one Ivan Marchenko, not Ivan Demianek. This information would have been gold dust to Demianek, fighting to retain his US nationality, but the investigators decided to keep it secret. That was scandalous. And then another inconvenient fact came to light. Three guards from Sobibor, another death camp, made sworn statements that they knew that Demianek had been a guard at Sobibor, and two identified him from his photograph. This assertion came to be supported by the appearance of an identity card, apparently issued to Demianek at Travniki, the training camp, which mentions Sobibor. It does not mention Treblinka. Had Demianek been both Ivan the Terrible at Treblinka and a guard at Sobibor? Being a guard at Treblinka would not have prevented him or anyone else from being a guard at Sobibor at another time. Or were some of those who had identified him mistaken? It was a question on which his life would later depend. The US authorities thought it fit not to resolve this apparent contradiction. 
Despite these unresolved questions, in 1981 it was decided that his naturalization would be revoked because he had lied on his immigration application, and in particular that he had misrepresented his place of residence from 1937 until 1948. In 1982, the OSI started prosecutions to have him deported, and in 1983, Israel issued an arrest warrant. In October 1985, he was extradited to Israel to face a charge that he had murdered Jews at Treblinka, in effect that he was Ivan the Terrible. The trial started in Jerusalem in November 1986 and was to last until April 1988. He denied the charge. Arguments swirled around the Travniki identity card. It appeared to be a standard Travniki identity card with the word Sobibor written on the bottom. Was it genuine or an amateur forgery? Eminent expert witnesses were called and testified for each side. And in any event, what did it prove? Five witnesses who had been prisoners at Treblinka were called and they identified Demyanek as the man they had known as Ivan the Terrible. But these identifications were highly questionable. In the first place, the ages of the witnesses ranged from 61 to 86, and they were trying to recall a face they had last seen four decades earlier. Secondly, Demyanek's extradition to Israel had been highly publicised, and it's unlikely that the witnesses would not already have seen photographs of him. And, as if that were not sufficiently prejudicial, the witnesses were asked to identify the man they thought to be Ivan the Terrible from a group of photographs, in which that of Demyanek was disproportionately large. It would be amazing if they had not been influenced. In court, two of the witnesses were patently unreliable, but the trial provided a moment of high drama when one of the other witnesses, Elio Rosenberg, asked that Demyanek remove his glasses and then, after crossing the floor of the court to get a better look, declared that he recognised the murderous eyes of Ivan the Terrible. That may well have been the event which decided the court. Rosenberg did not mention to this court that in 1947 he had told another court that Ivan the Terrible was dead. In announcing the court's findings, the judge declared Demyanek unhesitatingly and without a conviction, guilty of crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes against persecuted people, and he passed a sentence of death. But, as we shall see in a moment, despite his unhesitating conviction, he was wrong. The Israelis chose for Demyanik a cell from which he could hear the scaffold for his execution being built, and from that cell he lodged an appeal. The Berlin Wall had now fallen, and the Russians, who were more willing to cooperate, provided new evidence. That evidence comprised written statements by 37 former guards at Treblinka, in which they identified Ivan the Terrible as one Ivan Marchenko, not Demyanik, and a photograph of Ivan Marchenko, which was obviously different from photographs of the young Demyanik. The Israeli Appeal Court considered the matter. Demyanik had been prosecuted on the basis that he was Ivan the Terrible, and it was against that accusation that he had offered his defence. The case against him, as presented in the court, had been exploded by the new evidence, and his appeal was duly allowed. But what then? 
The appeal court could have ordered his trial in relation to events at Sobibor. But as the judge, Mr Justice Aaron Barrack, said, we know nothing about him at Sobibor. The fact that he had been a guard at Sobibor was not, for the Israelis, sufficient grounds on its own upon which to mount a prosecution. The Solicitor General agreed, and Demianic was released. Demianic returned to America and sought to have his citizenship reinstated, which it was, in February 1998. But the OSI had smelt blood, and they were not willing to give up the scent. They retrieved further documents from the Ukraine and the former West Germany, and these showed that Demianic had been at the camps at Sobibor, Majdanek, and Flossenburg, and these, in their view, constituted clear, unequivocal and convincing evidence that Demianic had persecuted civilians. This was sufficient for a court once again to remove his American citizenship. Various appeals followed, but all failed, and in May 2009, Demianic was deported to Germany and arrived in Munich on the 12th that month. The German prosecutor charged him with 27,900 counts of accessory to murder. The prosecution case was very simple. Sobibor was an extermination camp where people were murdered. Demianic had worked at that camp as a guard, and therefore he was an accessory to murder. This was an entirely novel approach. No proof was offered that Demianic had performed any act of cruelty or barbarity. It was sufficient, in the submission of the prosecution, merely that he had been a guard at the camp. The court accepted that argument, and in May 2011, Demianic was convicted and sentenced to five years imprisonment. He was then 91 and in poor health. He appealed that conviction, but died in March of the following year, before the appeal could be heard. Under German law, he died with the charge not having been proved. The Demianic case showed starkly the difficulties which the passage of time posed for a prosecution, and especially the dangers of eyewitness identification. But the main importance of this case is not the hounding of an unimportant camp guard, but the developments which the case gave rise to. With the Demianic case behind them, the German prosecutors found that they had the wind in their sails. They used the same legal arguments to prosecute a former Auschwitz guard, Oskar Groening, and secured a conviction which survived an appeal. This gave them further encouragement. They now widened their sights to include anyone who had been a guard at any concentration camp, even where this had not been an extermination camp. And I should say that there were over a thousand such camps during the war. But then they thought, why stop at guards? In October 2021, they put Irmgard Fjörschner, then 96, on trial because she had been a secretary to the commandant of the Stutthof camp. Age, in the eyes of the German state, is no barrier to justice, and to prove the point, in the same month they put on trial a centenarian, known only as Joseph S. Aber Nauer, a survivor of Stutthof, disapproves of these prosecutions. He is reported by Deutsche Welle, the German news organisation, as saying that Irmgard Fjörschner should have been left in peace, given that far more important criminals were allowed to get off scot-free. In legal terms, Germany has gone, as one might say, where no man has gone before. The British, French, Russian and American occupiers did not prosecute camp guards or typists just for being camp guards or typists. 
nor did the West German government when it became responsible for its internal affairs, nor did the Israelis. The Germans have achieved what might well be a world first. That may be reassuring, or it may be very unsettling. The justification of these modern trials is that they bring about justice. Let's look at that more closely. And while we do so, let's remember that everyone has a right to justice. Those suspected of war crimes today are in their mid to late 90s. They are in the late autumn of life and are usually invalids. If they are found guilty of an offence, a prison term is imposed. The fact is that few of these nonagenarians go down the pub on a Saturday night or hit the casinos in Las Vegas. And the reality of a prison sentence is that it is effectively a decision that their late-life care will be provided by a state nurse rather than a private nurse. A conviction is largely symbolic. In an attempt to achieve this symbolic victory, Demianek had the last 35 years of his life destroyed by the allegations against him. His life was turned upside down, and as we have seen, no crime was ever proved against him. You might argue that occasionally lengthy periods of judicial investigation are needed if justice is to be done. That may well be what the American authorities claim in respect of ten of their prisoners who have been in Guantanamo for nearly twenty years, and who have not yet been charged. It may be what the British government claims in respect of Dennis Hutchings, a former soldier whom the authorities investigated for forty-one years before charging him with murder, and even then they took another six years to bring the case to court. But I suggest that justice works two ways, and destroying a person's life by claiming to be seeking justice is itself unjust. You might, of course, say that the guilt of the perpetrators does not diminish with the passage of time, or that we owe it to the victims. And you can ask, with impeccable logic as you see it, why we should have sympathy with the perpetrators when they had no sympathy for their victims. Do that if you will. Treat your victims without sympathy in the way that they treated theirs without sympathy. But if you do that, then you place yourself on a level with them, equal to them. That is not where I should like to find myself. Shakespeare says that the quality of mercy becomes the throned monarch better than his crown. We now have, in my view, an ideal opportunity for the exercise of that virtue, and if we exercise that virtue, we shall be blessed, both the giver and the taker. In the 1940s, society, British, American, German, was generally more respectful of authority than today. Since then, we have become more libertarian and more democratic. We find it difficult to believe that anyone today could be forced to take on work which was not to his taste, and we assume that that was the case 80 years ago. And when we are told that someone was ordered to join the staff of a concentration camp, our first reaction is to ask, why did he not refuse? Why did he not ask for a posting? That shows how little knowledge we have of armies. That was not the case in 1940. In 1940, there were two and a half million men in the German army, and they and their relatives would have known very well that armies are composed of people who do what they are told, and that if they do not do what they are told, they will be punished. And remember that the Second World War was a war where the future, indeed the existence of some countries, such as Germany, was at stake, 
and in these conditions, unsurprisingly, any toleration shown to those who refused orders was very limited. Today, that knowledge is spread very thinly. The German army has declined to around 65,000 men. That point may be better understood by Americans. They will know that in the 1970s, many of their countrymen did not wish to take part in the war in Vietnam, and they found that the easiest means of escaping the draft was the extreme measure of fleeing the country. That solution was simply not possible for wartime Germans. And something else has changed, the politics. The administration of justice contains a large element of politics. Just think of all those politicians who have sought election on the basis of a policy of lock them up and throw away the key. That resonates with many people who are willing to support such a policy in the belief that they will not be the person being locked up. Tough penalties for motorists who exceed the speed limit by one mile per hour would be unlikely to be a vote winner. But if the target of the get tough policy is a handful of geriatrics, then it becomes far more acceptable. Stir into that mix the unease which Germans even today feel about their difficult past, and a policy of hunting down the last Nazi criminal becomes very appealing. It distances modern Germany from their Nazi past, and thereby acts as a soothing balm to the national psyche. And one last thought. I notice strange coincidence. As the number of camp guards, and now secretaries, reduces because of the effects of age, so the zeal of the German authorities in prosecuting them increases. Compare that with the case of Allied soldiers who fought in France after D-Day. In 2014, President Hollande awarded all those still alive the Légion d'honneur, France's very highest order of merit. Now, if all those soldiers were worthy of this medal in 2014, it is reasonable to assume that they were also worthy of it in 1944. And the question therefore arises, why were they not awarded it in 1944? What has changed between 1944 and 2014? One change is obvious. There are now far fewer potential recipients. And that has changed the politics. Is not the same true for the prosecution of German war criminals? You must form your own view. Thank you.